Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today on Something You Should Know, the next time you get a song stuck in your head, I'll tell you the best way to get rid of it. Then, how your memory works, and doesn't work, and why it's so often inaccurate. So yeah, our memories for what happened are, are not accurate or reliable, they're quite fickle. You know, when you're so sure of a memory for what happened, and you're arguing with your spouse because he thinks something else happened, you're probably both wrong. Then, did you know that when you print documents, some fonts use a lot more ink than others? And you might be sick of hearing about viruses, but actually, for the most part, they're a good thing. I would not like to live in a world in which there were no viruses. Not only that, but I'm going to explain a little bit later how if we were living in a world without viruses, you and I wouldn't exist. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now. And support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi. Ever get a song stuck in your head? Ever get that song stuck in your head? I've actually, <laughs> I've actually had that song get stuck in my head, that little musical intro there. Uh, those things are called earworms, and it seems that the more you try to get it out of your head, the more it keeps playing over and over again. Well, here is some well-researched advice for getting rid of those songs that keep playing over and over and over. This is from a study from 2016. The first piece of advice is to chew gum. Gum chewing reduces the number of involuntary musical thoughts and affects the music hearing experience, and it interferes with a person's ability to recall words from their short-term memory. So it made it more difficult for that song to stick. Listen to the actual song. See, I would think that would make it worse. 
But it turns out it actually helps it go away. Listen to a different song or go talk to someone. Often, I guess, these earworms get stuck in your head when you're alone. But if you engage with others or go pay attention to another song, it fades away. Do a puzzle. I guess that's just distraction, but it seems to help. Or just let it go. Don't try to get rid of it. Don't try to get it out of your head. Just move on and, and eventually it goes away. The study found that classic rock songs were the most common earworm-inducing songs, and at the top of the list were songs by Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Queen, Kylie Minogue, and Journey. And that is something you should know. Why do you remember some things forever and other things you quickly forget? Why do you sometimes recall events differently than someone else who was right there at the same time? Why do you remember odd little things from years ago but can't remember where you put your keys 10 minutes ago? And is your memory finite? Can it only hold so many memories? These are all some pretty good questions that are about to be tackled by Lisa Genova. Lisa is a neuroscientist, writer, and speaker who has appeared on The Dr. Oz Show, The Today Show, PBS NewsHour, and she's author of a book called Remember, The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Michael. Thank you for having me. So what is your memory? It's not like you can like look at a brain and say, oh, there's the memory part of the brain. So what is the memory? There is no memory bank. Memory isn't stored in a place. It's not like files in a file cabinet. So if you think about something you remember, uh, the first day on the beach with your friends and family and your kids are playing soccer, the sunset is beautiful, uh, Lady Gaga is playing on the, the portable radio, you've got oysters and s'mores and wine and beer. So Lady Gaga has nothing to do with oysters and wine and a sunset, but because I experienced all those things and paid attention to them, those different neurons, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, all of those are located in very different areas of my brain. All of those things become connected, and then activation of any one aspect can trigger the full expression of all of the other connected parts. That's a memory. And when I remember, what is it I'm remembering? Am I remembering my memory or am I really remembering the event? In other words, is is my stored memory not necessarily reality and doesn't it change over time? And that's what I keep remembering. And that's why, like when I go back to the house I grew up in, it doesn't look anything like I remember it, even though I think I remember it. So there's different kinds of memory and some of them are more accurate and reliable than others. So you're talking about, so there's memory for stuff and information, sort of the Wikipedia of your brain. And that really is pretty faithful over time. So, you know, if I memorized six times six in the third grade, like I'm not going to remember it as being 47 today. I'm going to always remember that that's 36. That's not going to change. But my memory for stuff that happened, that is highly likely to change over time. And it's, it begins with a distortion because we our brains are not video cameras recording a constant stream of every sight and sound we're exposed to. We can only capture to begin with what we pay attention to, right? So if you think about 
you know, your childhood. So say Christmas morning, um, you are going to remember something different than your little brother and something even different from what the parents notice. So what your memory of what happened isn't sort of, you know, the universal truth. It's just the slice of reality that captured your interest to begin with. Then over time, it can change because every time you reminisce, think about, write down, talk about a memory for something that happened, you have an opportunity to edit it and you will store the edited version over and you'll rewrite over the original version. So if I talk about that Christmas morning and my brother adds a piece of information, oh, you remember Aunt Susie and Uncle Bill came over. You had forgotten about that and didn't include it in your original memory, but now you do remember that they came. And so you add that to your memory. If you, if it's for, you know, something like September 11th, 2001, your memory can get distorted because you've watched the news. You've listened to so many reports and read so many reports about it. You've listened to other people talk about it. You can incorporate that information into your memory and that gets stored over the original. So our, our memories for what happened are are very fanciful and and not accurate. Well, I think everybody, I know I've had memories. I have memories of things that have happened. But I I know that my memory has changed over time. And yet, even though the memory is is probably a little different than I remembered it 5 years ago, I don't think of it as any less accurate. I th- I think my memory today is is just as accurate as it was before, and yet it's different. Um, this has happened many times. There are folks who answered a questionnaire right after the space shuttle Challenger exploded about where they were, who they were with, you know, how they heard about the news, how they felt about it, and then were re-interviewed two and a half years later and gave very different answers from what they gave immediately after the explosion. And then when they were shown their own handwriting that took place two and a half years ago, describing who who they were with and what they were doing, they were dumbstruck and couldn't explain it and stuck to their memory today versus their own handwriting two years ago. So memory for what happened is a funny thing. It does seem sometimes that memories disappear, that they're gone forever and yet there are those memories that might seem like they're gone forever but then some trigger will bring them back like they they're in there they it just needs something to pull them out and this gets back to what you said about visiting a childhood home right so you know if i live in new york city and and i'm you know in manhattan and i say i grew up in rural vermont and you ask me to describe you know, my childhood neighborhood or or something about my, my childhood home, I might not come up with much sitting in, you know, among amidst all the skyscrapers in the busy city. But if you take me in the car and drive me to that neighborhood in Vermont and all of a sudden I'm surrounded by the context and the cues that are associated with those memories, those become triggers that once activated can then trigger the activation of all of the other neurons connected to it. So, oh, there's the weeping willow and there's Mrs. Daly's house and, you know, Mikey and Joey lived right next door. And, and so the memories come flooding back when you're in the context of memories that were lot, seemingly long forgotten or not accessible. Yeah, that happened to me. I walked in after several years of having not been in my high school. I walked into my high school 
And it was like I had never left. And all these memories of people and places and events and things that, that I haven't thought of forever came flooding back and as it's as if it had just happened and it was the strangest thing. And that's happened a couple of times to me. Yeah, because a memory consists of all of the sensory and emotional elements, right? So when you're not in the presence of, of those cues, your brain isn't being activated specifically. But if you go back to high school, there are, there are the lockers, the color of the lockers, the smell of the hallway, the stairwell, um, all of those visual, uh, the, the, the olfactory, the touch, all of it can start to stimulate your brain. And then it's not just the sights and sounds and smells. It then activates all the things that are connected to it. So there's, oh, there's the memory of, of the girlfriend from senior year whose locker was two lockers down from yours. And you never even would have thought of that had you not been physically in that space. So is is the brain when it forgets all these things and then but but they're still there because they can come flooding back with the right triggers is that some just some kind of evolutionary efficiency that the brain is doing to make room for other things and if we need those we can pull them up but the the brain is working in in some sort of efficient fashion so that new things can come in yeah, this is a little bit of a misconception too. So there's, you know, people will say, oh, you're only using 10% of your brain and, oh, I need to forget things so I can make room for others. No, I mean, we have over a hundred trillion connections available to us in our brain. And, and so there's not a, a limit capacity. So, I mean, there's a, a, a Japanese engineer who at the age of 69 memorized over a hundred thousand digits of pi. And so here we have someone who's at an age that we would associate with being elderly and having maybe a diminished memory and, and for sort of a, a long-lived life that's fairly full of stuff in the brain, and yet he has room for 100,000 digits of pi. We always have room to remember more. So it's not that we need to be efficient and sort of tuck some things away or, or not or get rid of a certain number of memories so we can create new ones. Memories aren't don't feel available to us if we're not using them or searching for them. They're memories for how to do things. Culture calls it muscle memory. It's also called implicit memory. But so the, the memories for how to do things, right? So how to brush your teeth, how to ride a bike, how to type on your computer. Um, these become sort of unconscious automatic pilot. We know how to do them things. And we can not do them for years. So, for example, I was a skier when I was younger, and then I didn't ski for over 10 years. I was busy having kids and, and moved far away from mountains. And then when I got back up on skis, I had a moment where I thought, do I remember how to do this? Um, and so my brain hadn't used remember how to ski in over a decade. But as soon as I got on those skis, my brain knew exactly what to do. So muscle memory has integrity over time. Doesn't matter how many years you go. Let's like just like that's where the saying it's just like riding a bike. Um, it's in there. Even you don't have to get rid of it to make room for other memories. Yeah, but that's a misnomer, right? I mean, the memory is in your brain. It's not in your muscle. Thank you. Yes, that is a misnomer, right? So the choreography to the chicken dance. You know, it seems like your muscles know what to do, but they only know what to do because your brain is sending neurons to motor neurons to your muscles telling them what to do so yes this is why it's called a, it's it's called a muscle memory but it's a, a memory that that lives in your brain for sure we're talking about memory 
if my memory is correct. And my guest is Lisa Genova. She's a neuroscientist and speaker and author of the book, Remember, the Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief, why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. So Lisa, you mentioned things like 9-11 and when the Challenger exploded, and those are those kind of memories where everybody remembers where they were when those big, traumatic events happened those seem like they're very special, very unique kind of memories. This is true. And they feel vividly remembered and richly detailed. And we feel confident in the accuracy of them even years later. And while you will remember all of these things, like I remember where I was when I heard that Princess Diana died, um, you know, 9-11 for sure. The details around it, even though they're confidently held, are very often not accurate. And, it, you know, this is okay for the most part. Um, it gets interesting when we think about eyewitness testimony, which relies on the memory for what happened. But all of these, they're called flashbulb memories, which is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not a photograph of what happened. But again, folks who are interviewed after all of these, so flashbulb memories are for highly emotional, shocking events that do feel personal to you. Um, so like I have a, a flashbulb memory of, of where I was and what was going on um, after the Boston Marathon bombing. But maybe if you're from, you know, if you're from Paris, France, uh, you might have heard about the Boston Marathon bombing and it's certainly shocking, but you might not have a flashbulb memory of it because Boston might not be personal for you. And I'm from Boston. So while you will remember these events always, the details of actually what happened morph over time. And we've seen this over and over again in all the studies that that interview folks immediately after the event and then interview them again a year or two years later. And mo most of the details are off. 
Um, people don't remember it accurately. Uh, you know, knowing what I now know about memory and what I hope to share with you all is that, you know, when you're so sure of a memory for what happened and you're arguing with your spouse because he thinks something else happened, you're probably both wrong. Well, that doesn't say much for eyewitness testimony, does it? No, it doesn't. And, you know, there are there are many psychologists out there who've written a lot about this, um, one in particular named Elizabeth Loftus, who is really trying to educate the court system, the, judici- the judicial system, that there are a lot of life sentences and death sentence- sentences that have relied exclusively on eyewitness testimony. And since then, DNA evidence has shown that these folks are innocent. Um, so it's really, it's very scary to rely on it. Um, our memories are v- for what happened are very vulnerable to suggestion. Um, so for example, if I were to show you a video of uh, a car crash, and then after the video, I ask you, how fast were the cars going when they collided? Say you say 30 miles an hour. If I had instead asked you, how fast were the cars going when they smashed? You'd say something faster. You'd say they were going 40 miles an hour. So just the substitution of a single verb can change your memory for what you, what you believe you saw happened. Is there any way to prevent that? In, in other words, are, knowing what you know, are there ways to cement memories and keep them real, or this is just how the human brain works? Yeah, unfortunately, this is how our human brains work. Like Even when we write something down, we narrow the experience of what we, the memory of what we actually experienced, right? Because we can only, we only capture so much like I, if I, you know, in, in this conversation with you right now, if I were to then write, you know, dear diary today, I had a conversation with Michael Carruthers and I ex- talked about what we talked about. I wrote, if I wrote down what we talked about, I certainly wouldn't include all of it. And so when I go to revisit my diary and read what, what we talked about, I'm really going to reinforce and therefore only remember what I've written down. And I will forget any elements that I forgot to write down. Um, so yeah, our memories for what happened are, are not accurate or reliable. They're quite fickle. Um, our memories for the stuff we learn are way more stable and reliable. The memories for how to do things are really reliable. Our memories for what we want to do later, which is called your perspective memory, is probably the worst of them all. And again, this is part of the, the price of playing poker here for being human. It, our memories for what we want to do later um, this is like your brain's to-do list. Are all, it's awful. Um, we weren't designed to do this. So like it, planning to like, oh, I need to remember to call my mom or take out the trash or I need to remember to you know, take my heart medication. If you don't have a cue that triggers that recall when, when you're supposed to remember it or if you haven't written it down and have some sort of text alert on your phone or you're not in the routine of looking at your calendar, you are very likely to forget what you plan to do later. What about those people who can never remember where they put their keys or where they put their glasses and they, they get their phones, they're always using the find your phone thing because they can't remember where they left their phone. And people worry that, you know, that's a memory problem. Most of what we can't find. So there's the, oh, I can't remember where I put my phone. I can't find my glasses. Where did I park my car? of the time, this is not a memory problem. This is a, 
this is a symptom of distraction. You haven't paid attention to where you put those things in the first place. And the very first necessary step in creating any memory is attention. There is a perception, though, and the experience that many people report that as you get older, your memory isn't as sharp as it used to be. Yes? Yeah, so processing speeds do slow down. You know, 25-year-olds experience several tip of the tongues a week, that experience where you're like, oh, what's the name of that actor? Oh, my God, I know I know it. I can't get it. That will increase as you age because the processing speeds of your neurons slows down. So they're chugging a little slower to get to where they're trying to go. But it's the same phenomenon. You're not, you know, your brain isn't decaying. You're not experiencing dementia or a disease. This is not a reason for diagnosis. So it's frustrating, but it's not a cause for panic or shame or diagnosis. It's, you know, again, this is the price of playing poker. Um, Stress can, can make us fuzzy too. Chronic stress is really bad for our memory. And I think that, you know, in the last year in particular, a lot of folks have been you know, sort of drowning in chronic stress. So chronic stress is really bad for being able to form memories of new things, retrieving memories of stuff you already know, and will increase your risk of Alzheimer's in the future. And and I think older folks notice it more. So if you're 25 and you can't remember the name of the movie that your friend recommended, you don't immediately then jump to, oh my God, I'm losing my memory. I'm going to get Alzheimer's. You're 25, you're immortal, you just, and you don't hesitate to look it up on your phone because you've been tethered to a device practically since birth. But if you're 55 and you can't remember the name of the movie, a lot of us start to a panic and immediately jump to, oh my God, I'm losing my mind. So some of it's just that psychological leap. But there are times when people report, especially older people, things like, they left the oven on, or they can't remember how to spell a very common word. And it's not that they're, mm-hmm. they can't do it. It's not that a speed problem, a processing problem, they just don't remember. Right. So that can be a cause for concern. But again, before people panic, understanding how memory works and how it is supported and facilitated, and that if those things aren't present, maybe that's the reason you're foggy today. So if you, you know, we require seven to nine hours of sleep a night for your brain to clear away metabolic debris that accumulated during the business of being awake the night, the day before, and it consolidates the memories, the stuff that you learned that day before, and the stuff that you experienced gets laid down and locked into a lasting memory while you sleep. And so if you're sleep deprived, you will essentially wake up the next day with a little bit of amnesia and an inability to learn new things and remember new things that day. So you'll be compromised the next day if you're not getting enough sleep. So you can check in with yourself. Is that going on? Am I overly stressed? Um, You know, have I been sedentary for too long? If you don't, exercising is probably the best thing you can do for your memory. You know, people are looking for the, the pill, the supplement, the, the magic bullet. It's, it's exercise is really the best thing we know of. Um, so, I, you know, those, are you distracted? Again, you can't remember what you don't pay attention to. So if you're cooking on the stove and you've got, you know, young kids running around and there's some crisis and they're crying and they're screaming and they're fighting or the phone rings or if you're distracted, maybe that's why you left 
the oven on. Um, if none of those things are happening and you're, and you're worried, I definitely recommend a conversation with your doctor. I mean, I think people are so afraid of anything that's going on from the neck up and they, they keep quiet about it and they don't talk to the doctors about what's going on. And, and I'd like to see that change. You know, we're not afraid of talking about our heart health, right? So we'll get our blood pressure taken and check for cholesterol and we'll count the number of steps and we're all, you know, sort of in on having an influence over our heart health. Um, I'd love to see folks be unafraid of having a conversation with their doctor about their, their brain health and, and cognitive health. Well, it's interesting to listen to you because as, as amazing as the human memory is and the things it can do, it sure has a lot of deficiencies. Memory is a bit of a dunce. It's going to forget to call your mother. It's going to forget most of your life because most of our life is actually spent doing routine stuff and we don't remember routine stuff, but that's okay. It doesn't matter that I don't remember the details of every morning shower or what I ate for breakfast three weeks ago. Um, I think our brains are really good at remembering what's meaningful and what's what matters. And um, I think understanding how memory works and why it forgets can relieve us of some of the unnecessary stress that we're putting on ourselves when we forget stuff that's normal for our human brains to forget. You know, it's kind of sad, really. I always like to think that my memory's pretty sharp. I think most people like to think their memory's pretty good, but after listening to you, it's pretty clear our memories suck. But I guess all of our memories suck, so (laughs) at least the playing field's pretty level. Lisa Genova has been my guest. She's a neuroscientist, a speaker, and writer. And the name of her book is Remember, The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Lisa. Awesome. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Be well. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. In the last year or so, I know I, and I suspect you, have had it up to here with the coronavirus. I think we can all agree that viruses are bad news. So you might be interested in hearing that 
viruses actually play an important role in the world, according to Frank Ryan. Frank is a virologist, physician, and pioneering evolutionary biologist at the University of Sheffield in the UK, and he is author of the book, Virusphere, From Common Colds to Ebola Epidemics, Why We Need the Viruses That Plague Us. Hi, Frank. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thank you very much, Mike. I'm glad to be here. So I have to say, my gut reaction is, you know, we really don't need viruses. They make people sick, they kill a lot of people, and as we have all witnessed, can disrupt everybody on an entire planet, to which you would say what? I would not like to live in a world in which there were no viruses. Not only that, but I'm going to explain a little bit later how if we were living in a world without viruses, you and I wouldn't exist. So explain that, because I think my perception of viruses is they're nothing but destructive. They cause nothing but harm to whatever they come in contact with. So where's the good? About 20 years ago, marine biologists began to explore the the true nature of what's going on in all the oceans of the world. Now, you, we, you go for a bathe in the ocean, and you look down at water that looks crystal clear. That water is not empty. That water is absolutely teeming with bacteria. If, if those bacteria, and they replicate at an extraordinary rate, now, if those bacteria were allowed to just continue to replicate like that, the oceans would be a toxic, steaming mess of bacteria. You wouldn't dream of putting a foot in them. And, of course, they'd be very unhealthy for all of the uh, creatures that live in the oceans. What they discovered is there's an extraordinary symbiotic relationship between those massive number, billions and billions of bacteria in the oceans and far more numerous viruses called bacteriophage viruses, phage viruses. The viruses have a, a... a true symbiotic relationship with this bacteria and that the virus will sometimes enter the bacteria, infected if you want to call it that, but inside the bacteria the virus goes into a sort of dormant stage and doesn't do anything. Then at some stage, and there'll be some signal or other that signals it, the viruses replicate inside the bacteria on a colossal scale. When they do that, the bacteria then ruptures, it's called lysis, and all of the structural entities, the proteins and, and uh, inorganic compounds and everything else from the bacteria are released into the ocean. This is actually the basis of the oceanic food chain. Something else happened about 10 years ago, and again, most of the work on this was done by American scientists, American biologists. People began to think, well, if, if the oceans are absolutely full of bacteria and viruses, uh, what about man? And they actually started to look in soil you know, they found exactly the same thing. Soil is full of bacteria in vast, vast numbers. I mean, it's meaningless say, to say 10 to the 28 viruses. We couldn't imagine what that means. The numbers are absolutely vast. The numbers of viruses in the oceans and in soil outnumber all of the other life forms on Earth, including all of the bacteria, by a factor of 10 to 100-fold. So, if viruses disappeared overnight, what would happen to our oceans? What would happen to our soil? A, they become horrible, stinking messes of bacteria, but also the fertility of the soils and the uh, the kind of 
not the fertility, but various other aspects of the ocean, food chains of the oceans would cease. It would be a world in which we couldn't possibly carry on and live. How many viruses would you guess are on the Earth? Well, this, this is it. They, they said in the oceans there were 10 to the 28. That's, think of 10 times 10, 100, 10 to the 100,000, and go up to 28. It's a meaningless term. It's, it's so massive. You just can't, a computer might deal with it, but yours and my brain couldn't possibly deal with that. We, we can't think of numbers like that. People, t- you know, people talk foolishly like it's more than all of the stars in the sky and all this. It's just meaningless. I, can't, I don't believe anyone can count them. And are they all related? No, no, the, virus, the world of virology, there's numerous different kinds of virus, many, many different kinds of viruses. People say, well, how can viruses do the most good? Well, I'm going to talk to you about three relationships that will explain that. And I think you'll be surprised because you'll be acquainted with all three of these. Now, the first thing is the classical example of the Australian rabbits. Australia was suffering a plague of rabbits. They didn't know what to do about them. They were gobbling up all the grasslands, huge, huge numbers. They knew that a virus of the Brazilian wood rabbit was lethal to the European rabbit. The Australian rabbits were European because they were taken over from Europe in the late 19th century as a food. Now, instead of bringing the Brazilian wood rabbit over to Australia, all they brought was its virus, and its virus was the myxoma virus. The myxoma virus is non-lethal to the Brazilian wood rabbit, but when they injected them into about 30 or so Australian rabbits, released them out into the wild, wet season comes along, biting insects. That's how myxoma is transmitted. Within three months, 99.8% of the rabbits in Australia were dead. 99.8%. What would have happened if the Brazilian wood rabbit had come with its virus? The Brazilian wood rabbit would now colonize Australia. The virus would have made the way for its host. 0.2% of the Australian rabbits weren't killed, but they were sickly as a result of the virus. They had no rivals in their territory now. They begin to multiply. Today, Australia is once more full of rabbits, (laughs) but the rabbits have a partner, and the partner is the myxoma virus. Now, if we look at the koala in Australia, we'll see an entirely different pattern. The Australian koalas are currently suffering from what, in effect, AIDS, koala AIDS. They're infected by a retrovirus. The retrovirus is causing all of the sort of illnesses we saw in human AIDS, you know, the lymphomas and tumors and all these horrible illnesses that we saw in humans with AIDS. But it isn't killing all of them. It's culling them. In time, the only koalas who will be left will be those who are resistant to the action of the virus. The culling is creating a new virus-host relationship. We've now got a koala that can, will be able to live with it, and then it'll do strange things. We'll come to it in a minute. It may completely change the evolution of the koala. In, in Britain at the moment, we've got something in between. We've got the American red squirrel was brought into Britain about a century ago. It's carrying a virus. They, it's called a, squ- a squirrel pox virus. It's lethal to the British, native British red squirrel. If it's allowed to continue without interference, there won't be any red squirrels left. 
and the gray squirrel and its symbiont will occupy the territory. You're seeing exactly the same thing, aggressive symbiosis between virus and host. The virus is contributing to its host. It's giving it the territory. But as you say, there are all these uh, uncountable numbers of viruses. Why is it that occasionally one like the virus that we're facing now shows up and does such devastation when obviously most of them we barely notice? I think, I think that's a very good question. And it goes back to that thing I was talking about, that aggressive symbiosis right at the beginning. All of the animals in nature, all those wild animals out there, have a, a cluster of different viruses that the virologists would use the term are co-evolving with them. Co-evolving means symbiotic with them. They all have them. Now, one of the animals that has more virus, mammals, all the mammals particularly, have co-evolving viruses. And when scientists have looked at them to see which of them has the most, which perhaps has the viruses that might be dangerous to us, they discovered that it was bats, different species of bats. Bats are actually the most have the most species within the family of all the mammals. There are lots of different kinds of bats, and they're all carrying viruses. If another uh, mammal comes into close proximity to another mammal that's carrying viruses, there is a possibility that the virus will jump species from its normal host into the species that's coming into contact with them. And almost certainly the COVID has come from humans come into, coming into contact either with bats or possibly with a, a species that got into close contact with bats and then got into contact with humans. The original host of the coronaviruses are bats. I Somehow, thought the uh, prevailing wisdom was that it was created in a lab. I don't think so. I don't think so because the so-called spine of this coronavirus is absolutely nothing like the previous one. SARS and MERS, for example, don't have that spine. If a lab was working on viruses to try and fiddle and just t t change them very slightly, they'd obviously start with viruses that were known already and they'd use them. This virus, is, if they would have had to create a complete virus from scratch to make this one, and I think that that's way beyond the ability of any laboratory to do. So I think the likelihood is, is this has come either directly or indirectly from bats. And there are coronaviruses in bats that are very similar genomes to this one. So it's highly likely that that's the explanation. The other thing that's important in, in the explanation is, you know, people compare COVID to the great flu of 1918, your so-called Spanish flu. But the popu human population at the time of the Spanish flu was 1.8 billion. The human population today is 7.8 billion. And that tells you, along with all the other scare stories we hear about global warming and all that, is that, that this huge increase in the global human population is forcing people to move out into areas that they wouldn't have moved into before. It's bringing more and more people into contact with feral sort of symbiosis, between, particularly with mammals and viruses. And I think that the reason why viruses, for instance, Ebola came from chimpanzees in Africa. AIDS came from chimpanzees in Africa. This one almost certainly came from bats. Mars, uh, SARS almost certainly came from bats. And I think that, the, I think it's another 
impact really of sort of human population burgeoning to levels that are difficult to support. And I think we're asking for trouble living in a world where there's such a pressure on humans that they're forced to move for food sources and space and everything else into feral areas. And so this has increased the risk to us of these things emerging. So one of the things I've always wondered about viruses, but I guess you could ask the same question about cancer or anything else, is why do these things seek to destroy when ultimately they end up destroying themselves? Well, I don't think they seek to destroy. They don't think. I think they, the problem with viruses is they, there's only one force controlling viruses, and that's evolutionary forces. Everybody who, anybody who studies viruses and their genomes will realize they're the ultimate expression of evolutionary viruses because they're so simple in their structure that that's all that works with them. They respond to evolutionary forces. If, for example, you've got coronavirus spreading in a population, you'll have different groups spreading into different areas, different landscape areas within that population, and the virus is mutating at an extraordinary rate. So any any, uh, subgroup of the virus that is better at infecting people, better at replicating itself, will dominate. Natural selection will select the one that's best at doing it. It isn't saying that natural selection is a thinking thing that chooses the virus. All you're really saying is that the virus that does it best will dominate, and that's what happens. Once a virus like that starts to move, you've got the most absolute naked application of Darwinian natural selection in that the one that does it best dominates, and that's what's happening. That's what we're witnessing. And why do... Why does this virus, why does COVID become variant? Why are there these other strains of it? What, what causes that? Uh, that's exactly what I've been talking about. What, when they say a variant of COVID, all it is is that the genome of the virus, when it replicates, it doesn't do it, very, it, doesn't do it perfectly. It makes mistakes. We do. Every human, every human, when they're born, gets their a mixture of the DNA of the two parents. But actually, again, it isn't a perfect process replicating the DNA. And there are a small number of little changes are called mutations. In other words, single point mutations. Now, a virus mutates far more than we do. Their control of their replication is much poorer than ours, so they make lots of mistakes. Whether it's COVID or just the common cold, why are they so hard to treat, kill, get rid of? Well, they, the difference between a virus and a bacterium is a bacterium has got its own internal metabolism, its own biochemistry, and so we can design drugs that, it, that damage the bacterial biochemistry, and that's how the antibiotics were discovered. Viruses use the biochemistry of the host, so it, it isn't as easy to get a drug that will stop it like an antibiotic. And, of course, the antibiotics don't have any effect on viruses. So only relatively recently have we found good... Remember, AIDS was a tremendous stimulus to find drugs that would stop the virus. But the sort of drugs we need to use to stop a virus are much more complex, if you want, than the compounds we might use to stop a bacterium. And the reason why is you've got to get get drugs that either uh, jumble the virus genome or uh, maybe a drug that 
could in some way prevent the virus latching onto, you know, the appropriate uh, uh, chemical on the surface of our cells. It's much more complex to make a drug that'll do that. The other thing we learned, of course, from AIDS, as we did from tuberculosis, which is something I looked into in the past, is that only when we used, say, three drugs at the same time did we control it. And it's possible that from the point of view of drug therapy, what we might need with COVID is at least two or maybe more drugs to be given to someone at the same time that might stop the virus. Our problem is we don't have the time. It's moving so fast that we don't have the time. Normally, you take decades to develop new drugs, and we don't have that time. So I think we're going to have to rely very heavily on vaccination. So we're seeing we're seeing the cases, new cases of, of this virus dropping pretty rapidly, although I guess it seems like it's plateaued a bit, but it has fallen off pretty considerably. Yeah. Will it go yeah. away? Uh, well, I think that, again, I can't simply, I can't easily answer it because we've never experienced a COVID pandemic before. I keep, I know I keep saying this, but it's very important not to compare this to flu. It's not flu. It's a completely different virus, much more complicated virus than flu. It's like comparing a, a, you know, a, a mouse to a camel or something. They're, they're totally different. So we have to look at this virus in its own right. And so uh, next year it won't come back like the flu I, does as a ver- variation of what it was before? Not necessarily, because this isn't a seasonal virus. The flu virus likes the temperature in your nose and your respiratory passages is about three or four degrees below normal body temperature. In other words, in winter, in cold climates, when you're breathing cold air, that cools the nasal passages and the cells in the nasal passages, and the flu virus loves that. But this virus doesn't care. The temperature doesn't make any difference to it. You remember it came along in the summer. It was, it was killing people on a grand scale in Italy and Spain right in the middle of the summer. This virus doesn't care seasonally, so it won't be seasonal factors that decide whether this keeps rotating round and round and round. I think it'll be other factors. I think the key thing here, really, to me, is vaccination, because vaccination, uh, you know, would create a barrier to to the spread of the virus, you know, this herd immunity that people talk about. And we need to get herd immunity as fast as we can to stop it spreading. And touch wood, I hope, that'll stop it. Even if another... Uh, coronavirus broke out, we'd now already have some resistance to coronaviruses from global vaccination, which would make it very difficult for another pandemic to arise. If this had happened, if this virus had shown up a couple hundred years ago before modern medicine, would it have had the potential to wipe us out? I don't think so. One of the things that is very reassuring for me is that if the virus is allowed to just spread and we did nothing at all, it looks as if the mortality rate would be between 1% and 2%, which means that it, wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't wipe out the human species. There are viruses that were much worse than that. The worst virus in history was actually one everybody knows about, called smallpox. I've got a smallpox vaccination scar on my arm. Smallpox in a virgin population, in other words, a population that's never uh, experienced it before, was lethal in 70 to 90% of those it infected. COVID, compared to that, is a kitten. (laughs) Well, I I guess I get it now that we need viruses 
there's just a few of them that we could really do without, but it's good to get a real understanding of what they are and what they do. Frank Ryan has been my guest. He is a virologist, physician, and evolutionary biologist. His book is called Virus Fear, From Common Colds to Ebola Epidemics, Why We Need the Viruses That Plague Us. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Don't you just hate it when your computer printer runs out of ink or it tells you you're low on ink and then you got to spend all that money for new ink cartridges? Well, here's some advice. If your document setting uses the Arial font as the default for printed documents, which many do, you're wasting ink and therefore money. Century Gothic uses about 30% less ink when printed. And, of course, the smaller the font, the less ink and paper you'll use. There are some other tricks to saving cartridge ink. In your preferences, choose the draft option instead of normal or best. And if you use the print in grayscale option, you'll save big on those pricey color cartridges. And that is something you should know. This is that point in the podcast where I ask you to tell someone you know about this podcast... And I wouldn't ask if it didn't mean a lot. So please tell someone you know about this podcast, share the link with them, and let them hear it. And, well, then the two of you will have plenty of things to talk about. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.